0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Super Mario Kart, a kart racing title developed and published by Nintendo, released in 1992 for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. We're going to talk about that title in just a couple minutes, but first, as is customary, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 38. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing. Provide comments, feedback, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a couple of ways you can reach out. I do have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com, and I also have a Twitter account with the handle at Classic So feel free to reach out. Shoot me a note. I am legitimately interested in having the discussion. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to take a brief moment to go over the anatomy of an episode, because for the most part, every single one of our episodes follows a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context, how was the game made, why was the game made, and then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a quantitative value to games, we don't give it 5 stars, we don't rate games on a 1-10 to kind of scale, but we do talk about every single game from several different perspectives. We look at the graphics, how does the game look, the sound and music, how does the game sound, the narrative and or story, if the game has one, playability and controls, and overall feel, what does it feel like to play the game today versus when it may have been released 20, 30, 40, maybe even longer ago, and we do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today, and to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the pantheon of classic gaming if a game reaches the pantheon you know it is that darn good it is a certifiable classic you should play it today even though it may have been released many many years ago it is one of those titles that you cannot miss just beyond the pantheon are our golden oldies these are still really good experiences i still highly recommend that you play them especially if you have particular nostalgia for the game or you enjoy the genre in which the game lives, absolutely, you should play these games. They are highly recommended. Not quite Pantheon level, but still really good experiences nonetheless. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach our mediocre mentions. This is where we start getting into the games that I can't really recommend to the broader population. You may still have a good time if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives, so by all means, if you feel like it, go for it, but I cannot recommend these games to the general population. They are either a little bit aged beyond what we would like, or they may have had a couple of issues in their original design. And beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anybody play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Super Mario Kart. Super Mario Kart is a kart racing title developed and published by Nintendo released in 1992 for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Before we can talk about Super Mario Kart, we have to take a step back and look at the release of the Super Nintendo Entertainment System itself, or Super Famicom in Japan, as well as some of the brand new technology that Nintendo was hoping to deliver with their new 16-bit console. First, though, I want to mention that there is an awesome Super Mario Kart documentary that the Gaming Historian YouTube channel published in late 2022. If anyone is interested in learning even more about the creation of Mario Kart, I highly recommend you check that video out. It certainly helped me to fill in some blanks in my own research. Anyway, I think it goes without saying, But most new console launches are a pretty big deal, especially in the late 80s and early 90s, where the console wars were particularly cutthroat. Every single company releasing a new console was out to prove their console was the one that consumers should purchase above all others. Nowadays, the major consoles have a relatively similar set of capabilities that they all enable in some form or another, with only some disparity between Nintendo and their focus on fun and portability versus Sony and Microsoft's focus on raw power and technical specifications. But in the early 80s and 90s, the gap between consoles was considerably wider, and this extended not only to hardware, but to the games available on each console as well. When the Super Famicom, or Super Nintendo, released in 1990 in Japan and 1991 in North America respectively, Nintendo was entering a market where other 16-bit systems had already been released by competitors. NEC had their PC Engine, or TurboGrafx-16, which, although not a true 16-bit system in all respects, still had much higher graphical capabilities than 8-bit systems of the time. And Sega had their Mega Drive, or Genesis, which was a true 16-bit system in both graphics as well as processing capabilities. As Nintendo prepared to enter the market, they had to figure out a way to make up for lost time, as well as make a mark in the 16-bit video gaming landscape. Otherwise, they ran the risk of being left behind despite the mega success of their original 8-bit Nintendo Entertainment System, as well as their Game Boy Portable System. And there were two major ways that Nintendo wanted to distinguish itself from the competition. One was technological advancement, and the other was in their launch titles and the extreme quality that they were trying to drive into those launch titles. From a technological perspective, I don't want to go into the nitty gritty details of all of the technical specifications of the system, What I do want to focus on though, is one major technological addition that Nintendo put front and center in the Super Famicom marketing materials, and that is the concept of Mode 7 graphics. When the Super Famicom was being engineered, it was determined that the system would have eight different so-called graphics modes for use on the system, governing how graphics, sprites, and backgrounds would be displayed on the screen. Mode 7 is pretty much the only one that gets any sort of attention whenever you talk to gamers from the 90s, or even when you read published articles from back around that time, because the effect was so different than what had come before. Recall from our Star Fox episode that the Super Famicom, in its default configuration, has no real 3D graphics processing capabilities. The system was designed almost exclusively for two-dimensional graphics and worlds, with three-dimensional capabilities only really possible via add-in chips included on specific cartridges' PCB boards, like the Super FX chip. But Nintendo devised a way to create a pseudo three-dimensional effect using its base console – By using a combination of perspective correction and image stretching along with a bunch of linear algebra to transform images and the way that they'd be displayed on the screen nintendo could make it seem like the player was experiencing a 3d environment even though the system itself was only using two-dimensional images that in a nutshell is what mode 7 is It takes a single background image, it performs a bunch of image transformation operations on it, and then ultimately stretches and scales the image so that from certain viewpoints, the game would appear to be rendering a three-dimensional landscape, complete with an actual horizon and the appearance of image depth, meaning you could effectively walk into an image as though you were navigating a world. Now, retrospective analysis of Mode 7 recognizes that the technology was amazing at the time, but also recognizes that it doesn't necessarily hold up quite so well from a visual perspective when looked at through a modern lens. It's not like true three-dimensional visuals were playing on a Super Nintendo system. It was, for all intents and purposes, a cool graphical trick. Regardless, the fact remains that Nintendo pushed Mode 7 hard, and really saw it as a discriminator when compared to competing consoles of the time. Because of that, they knew that they wanted to include Mode 7 visuals in their launch titles, primarily as a way of demonstrating a key selling point of their new console. For the Super Famicom, there were two launch titles that Nintendo was readying for the market. One was the latest release in the incredibly popular Super Mario series, entitled Super Mario World, while the other was a brand new futuristic racing game whereby players could race around gigantic tracks at breakneck speeds while attempting to beat their opponents to the finish line that game was F zero launch titles for a new system, especially in this era of video game consoles were a big deal, much more so than what we see today. The simple fact is the rate of game releases in the late eighties and early nineties was dramatically lower than what we've become accustomed to. After whatever launch titles, a company would queue up. You might be lucky to have a handful of additional titles release over the next couple months. It's not as though there weren't options. It's just that the options were pretty slim, which meant that a console's launch titles often needed to be good enough to hold gamers' attention for at least a month following a console's release. Because of that, companies would often task their best designers with creating these critical games, and for Nintendo, that meant Shigeru Miyamoto and his team of talented creators at Nintendo's Entertainment Analysis and Development Division, or EAD, We've talked about Miyamoto before, but for those who may need a refresher, Shigeru Miyamoto is perhaps the most well-known and respected game designer in the entire world, having been responsible for the creation of countless games and franchises that remain popular to this day, such as Mario, Donkey Kong, and Zelda, just to name a few. As the Super Famicom was nearing its launch, Miyamoto was tasked with assuming production responsibilities for both Super Mario World and F-Zero. And over a period of 15 months, the team at Nintendo's EAD worked on both titles, until eventually both would release concurrently with the Super Famicom system on November 21st, 1990. As the latest in the Super Mario series, Super Mario World had a ready-made audience salivating at the possibility of experiencing an advanced 16-bit adventure starring the mustachioed plumber. And Miyamoto and the team didn't disappoint, with numerous technical and gameplay enhancements involving the Mario formula, including the introduction of Yoshi, a number of new power-ups, and an interconnected world with a variety of secrets and hidden exits that gamers spent countless hours searching for. F-Zero, by contrast, was a brand new intellectual property, and it was this title that was really designed to demonstrate what Mode 7 graphics were all about. In F-Zero, the player would choose from one of four racers, each with their own attributes, and would take their chosen character and race across several tracks, all in the hopes of coming in first and beating the competition. Players would have a behind-the-vehicle view of the action, with effectively a heads-on perspective that created a sense of depth that just hadn't been possible on home consoles before. Gamers loved it, and many people consider the title to be one of the best games of all time. Despite the acclaim it received, the development team wasn't 100% happy with the game, primarily for one reason— Because of the speed of the game and the size of the tracks, the experience was restricted to a single player only, meaning there was no multiplayer capability in the title. It was strictly a solo affair. The team couldn't spend too much time lamenting that limitation, though, because there was yet another title Miyamoto was producing, scheduled to release around a month after the Super Famicom's release. This was yet another game designed to demonstrate the power of Mode 7 graphics, only this time, Via the creation of a more realism driven flight simulation experience as opposed to the breakneck futuristic racing of F Zero. That game was Pilot Wings. Pilot Wings would feature a variety of flight based activities, including piloting a light airplane, skydiving, hang gliding, helicopter rescue missions, and rocket belt flights. In all instances, Mode 7 graphics were used to create a sense of scale and three-dimensionality that really made it feel like you were traversing an actual world rather than simply a two-dimensional screen in a video game. Similar to Super Mario World and F-Zero, Pilot Wings was very well received by both gamers and critics. The EAD team had succeeded in delivering three hit titles, all released within one month of each other. 1991 saw the team continue to work on high-quality titles for the Super Famicom, and by extension, the Super Nintendo system, as they released both a port of the popular computer city management title SimCity, as well as the next title in the Legend of Zelda series, A Link to the Past. The team was simply firing on all cylinders. Every single release was a mammoth home run. With such success comes even greater expectations, and the EAD team was now faced with the prospect of what their next game should be. As the team began deliberating on what to do next, they looked at their recent works, and they recalled that F-Zero, while an undeniable success, was still a bit of a disappointment insofar as the experience wasn't able to be made into a multiplayer title. So... It was decided that the team was going to try their hand at creating another racing title in a similar style to F Zero, using Mode 7 graphics, albeit with the ability to allow for split screen multiplayer racing. Now, I mentioned before that F Zero created a sense of speed unlike what had previously been experienced on home console releases, and one of the reasons that the team was able to do that was because each individual track was absolutely massive, at least in terms of Super Famicom capabilities. That track size was pretty much a requirement for the insane speeds the game would display, The fact that each track was gigantic meant that the team could afford to have cars move at a faster speed while still, at the same time, allowing players to be able to control the vehicles without too much difficulty, since any turns would be telegraphed far enough away that you could still maintain speed without requiring split-second maneuvers. Maintaining that speed and those track sizes would have been impossible for the Super Famicom to do for two players at the same time. So, the team knew that in order to create a two-player racing title, they'd have to make the game design, at least in terms of world size and speed, much simpler. The question was, how to take a traditional racing kind of experience and slow it down without making the game a dull experience? As design began on the game, Miyamoto asked various individuals from across EAD to begin working on the title. Recognizing that he'd need people with some pretty strong Mode 7 experience in order to make this new game a reality, he assigned members of the teams that had previously worked on both F-Zero and Pilot Wings to begin collaborating on this new game, eventually tasking two individuals, Tadashi Sugiyama and Hideki Kono, with co-director responsibilities. Sugiyama had just recently acted as the director for Pilot Wings, so he knew what it would take to bring a full-fledged Mode 7-driven title to market, while Kono was fresh off working on level designs for Super Mario World, which was pretty much Nintendo's flagship title for the Super Famicom. With Sugiyama and Kono in place, and the rest of the team filled out with programmers, artists, and other creative individuals that had previously worked on EAD's Super Famicom titles to date, the team got to work. Early on, the team decided to create a prototype of a racing title using hover cars, similar to the vehicles used in F Zero, but with much smaller, albeit more complex, tracks and a slower overall vehicle speed. This, however, just didn't have the right feel, according to the team. It was almost like there was a disconnect. With hover cars styled similarly to F-Zero, there was an expectation that the action would be fast-paced. Making those cars slower just didn't work. Similarly, taking another type of traditional racing style like Formula One, which was popular in Japan at the time, would have had the same kind of issue. If they couldn't maintain the right sense of speed, they couldn't do the game justice and the game simply wouldn't be fun to play. One of Shigeru Miyamoto's core gameplay philosophies is that a game had to be fun above all else. It didn't need to be the most technologically advanced experience, but it should make players smile while they're playing it. These early prototypes were not hitting the mark. As luck would have it, While the team was researching alternate forms of racing to potentially base their game on, they came across go-kart racing, which looked as though it might provide a slower-paced, albeit still fun, experience for players. But none of the team had any real-world go-kart knowledge, so they actually spent a day away from the office and went to a local go-kart racetrack to both learn more and to experience what it actually felt like to race in these mini-car-like machines. By the end of the day, the team knew they had found the idea upon which their new game would be based. Go-kart racing was a slower-paced style of racing with much smaller tracks than traditional racing types, so it seemed like it would meet the requirements of the multiplayer racing title the team was beginning to design. And beyond that relatively technical viewpoint, go-kart racing was simply fun. So, the team had a concept. They just needed to figure out how to convert that concept into a playable, fun experience. The first prototypes of this new kart racing experience were very simple, but still developed enough that the team could get a sense of how a final product could potentially play out. There were tracks, and there were a number of multicolored kart racers, all of whom would race around the tracks with the goal of winning the race. Even in this simple state, everyone on the team agreed that they captured the essence of kart racing, but something was still missing. The prototype felt barren in a way. Or maybe it just felt sterile. There was no character to the experience. It was simply generic racers racing around generic tracks. Maybe the red character would come in first. Maybe the blue one would eke out a win. Or who knows, maybe the pink racer would squeak out a victory. At the end of the day, it didn't much matter. There was nothing special about it. The team continued to try to figure out what was missing until one day they had an epiphany. What if? Instead of generic racers, they replaced those racers with characters that players would be familiar with from prior Nintendo titles. And what if instead of simply racing around generic tracks, players would race around themed locations, once again drawing from Nintendo's back catalog of titles? This was an intriguing concept, and given the team's pedigree, one franchise immediately sprung to mind. What if they brought the Mario universe into the title? Artists quickly mocked up several Mario characters as kart racers and reloaded the prototype, and everyone realized this was it. This was the special sauce that would turn their future kart racing title into something to be remembered. This was the birth of Super Mario Kart. With renewed vigor, the team continued working on the project, and now that they had decided to use Mario and his friends, and sometimes enemies, as the basis of the racing experience, they had an opportunity to inject even more of that Mario magic into the title. Drawing inspiration from their prior work, each racetrack in the game, which would eventually cover 20 different courses, would be themed after various lands and biomes from Super Mario World. These courses would be split up amongst a number of championship cups, with each individual collection of courses consisting of five separate races. While each individual track would be full of twists and turns, their overall length was relatively short, and most lap times for each course were well less than 20 seconds. The reason for that, like we talked about, was the desire to include multiplayer racing in the title. In order to add 2 player gameplay, the team split the gameplay screen horizontally, with player 1's view taking up the top half of the screen and player 2's view taking up the bottom half of the screen. Interestingly, despite the fact that you might play the game as a single player from time to time, the screen remained split horizontally. In single player mode, the bottom half of the screen was repurposed to either display a map with each racer's relative position shown on it, or a rear view mirror that allowed you to see who was attempting to pass you. I don't know if that was a technical limitation or simply a design choice, but it was interesting to me that the split screen existed regardless of whether you were playing a single player or two player game the act of controlling each of the racers in the game would be a critical piece of the overall package, as a poorly controlling game can sap the fun out of the entire experience. To address the controls, the team went through a number of iterations, oftentimes with minor adjustments between each version, until they eventually settled upon a mix of realistic, to a degree, driving physics with some additional elements added in to help make the game more fun. Rather than simply drive around a track, Racers could jump, which added a bit of additional strategy to the races, as doing so while going around a tight turn could allow you to maintain speed, or at least not lose as much speed as you otherwise would by applying the brakes. This evolved to include not just jumping, but a more advanced technique called the power slide, which was akin to drifting in other racing games, but made a bit simpler to pull off in this particular title. With the controls and overall design coming together, Focus shifted on how to make the game even more fun, especially for players who might be a bit less skilled at actual racing mechanics. The thought was, delivering a straight-up racing game would be okay, but for players who may not be that proficient at racing titles, it might not be that fun if they didn't have a reasonable chance of winning. So, the team decided to add various items and power-ups to the game, skewing the probability of good items appearing in favor of individuals who may be near the back of the racing pack. These items, in some instances, could literally change the outcome of a race almost single-handedly. They added a degree of chaos to the mix and created a situation where almost anything could happen, making it so that a racer was never truly 100% out of a race. If they got the right item, the tides could effectively turn on a dime. The task of composing the game's music would fall to Soyo Oka, a female musician who had previously worked on several Nintendo titles, including Pilot Wings, under the tutelage of Koji Kondo, who you may remember was the original composer for both Super Mario and The Legend of Zelda, amongst many other titles. Oka's task was to create a series of tracks that captured the whimsy of Mario-based themes while at the same time creating music that would feel appropriate for a racing title, That likely sounded like a strange combination at the time, but it was critical in being able to sell the idea of a Mario-based racing game. With items, driving controls, music, and the overall theme and tracks finally coming together, Super Mario Kart was shaping up to be a brand new fun take on the racing game genre. But Shigeru Miyamoto still felt like something was missing. Everything in the game up to this point was solely about competing for first place, Whether you were playing a multiplayer Grand Prix mode, head-to-head racing between you and a buddy, or trying to best the computer as a single-player racer, the focus was always the same. Place first, win the cup. Miyamoto thought there was a need for a different kind of mode, focused on pure one-on-one competition, where the goal wasn't necessarily to race, but was more about playing more directly against your opponent in a non-racing kind of setting. The concept became the foundation for the game's two-player battle mode, where you and a friend, or soon-to-be enemy, would each choose a character and use various items to attempt to deplete your opponent's shields. Spread across several tracks designed specifically for this mode, players would jump, shoot, and ram their way to victory, and I gotta say, from personal experience... Some of the most fun times in gaming that I've had around this time were playing Battle Mode with my brother. It was pure carnage, chaos, and above all, unbridled fun. With that final element in place, the game was finally ready for the public, and Super Mario Kart would release on both the Super Famicom and Super Nintendo within days of each other in late summer 1992. Critical response to the title was pretty much universally positive, as critics declared the game's combination of graphics, music, and overall gameplay to represent the pinnacle of game design, with many publications naming it to their best games of the year and, in later years, best games of all time lists. The game would prove to be a commercial success as well, with nearly 9 million copies sold worldwide, good enough to rank as the fourth highest selling Super Nintendo game of all time. Beyond the release of the actual title, the significance and impact of Super Mario Kart would be far-reaching. For one, it single-handedly created a new genre of racing game, the Kart Racer, and over the years that would follow, a number of companies would try their hand at copying Nintendo's success by releasing their own kart racing experiences. Even further, and perhaps more importantly... Super Mario Kart was the first title where Mario Universe characters would appear in a game outside of one of Nintendo's traditional platforming games, and based on how loved the game became with players, it was a formula worth exploring further. This would lead to a number of titles where Nintendo mascots and characters would appear in a variety of settings and game types, with Mario and his friends taking part in tennis tournaments, board game nights, soccer matches, baseball games, golf outings, and, perhaps most significantly, competitive fighting tournaments without super mario kart proving that nintendo characters could cross over to other game types i wonder if we would have ever gotten super smash Bros. maybe but maybe not beyond the various crossover titles that would come out super mario kart itself would evolve into a long-running series that has graced pretty much every nintendo console to date while also making its way into modern arcades as multiplayer racing cabinets While pretty much every aspect of the game is expanded and evolved over time, the fact remains, they all still have the same core foundational gameplay loop that Super Mario Kart put in place over 30 years ago. Super Mario Kart is a rare landmark achievement in gaming, a title that both influenced and impacted not just Nintendo, but the gaming industry at large. Nintendo's EAD team succeeded in releasing yet another blockbuster hit, And with Mario Kart, the team delivered a game that would resonate with players for decades to come. There's a reason why Mario Kart still exists today. The very first game in the series set the bar incredibly high. And even though it was released back in 1992, it still has modern day relevance and respect amongst the gaming community. And the legacy of Mario's first racing title will be one that persists for countless years to come. We're now going to shift to start talking about how it feels to play Super Mario Kart today versus when it was released over 30 years ago. So just to go over high-level overview, Super Mario Kart is a kart racing game. You choose from one of eight different racers, and you race around a number of different tracks, and they have a variety of different environments. You might have one track that is an icy lake, there might be some muddy off-road courses. Some traditional racing tracks with an actual asphalt surface, sandy beaches, rickety ghost houses, lava surrounded castles, and if you're good enough, a road literally made from a rainbow. Now, Super Mario Kart has several different modes. It's not just a pure racing experience. There are a number of different ways that you will interact with the game and a number of different modes that you can play the game in. So let's talk about each of those different modes just briefly so that we all get the sense of what the game overall encompasses. One of the primary, if not the primary mode in the game is their Grand Prix mode, which is a single or two player kind of experience. And in this mode, you pick a difficulty, which effectively is your overall speed of your carts. So you start with 50cc and 100cc unlocked. You can, if you perform really well at the 100cc course, you can unlock 150cc difficulty mode. And we'll talk about those difficulty modes in a little bit. But the way it works is you pick a difficulty mode, you pick a racer. And then you go off and you race. There are a few different cups you can choose from. In 50cc mode, there are three different cups that you have the ability to select. Each of those cups are a collection of five different races. So as 50cc mode, you can select between one of three different cups. Each of those has five races. In the 100cc mode and 150cc mode, you can select between four different cups because the final cup in each of those races or in each of those circuits is a much more difficult selection of tracks that's really designed to put your skills to the test. Now, within the Grand Prix mode, the goal is not necessarily to win first in every single race, but you want to win first across the entire cup that you are racing in. In each race, you can uh, place either first, second, or third, or fourth. If you don't rank fourth or higher, you will have to restart the race. So you do have to finish the race in either the first through fourth position. And depending on which position you finish in, you get a number of points assigned to you. And that happens for each of the five races in the overall cup that you've selected. So you can have any number of combinations of different placements in each of the individual races. As long as by the end of those five races, you have more points than the competition, you win. And if you get one of the top three places, there's a little trophy screen that happens after the fact and you get awarded a trophy and you kind of are congratulated by the game. Although in reality, the only the only uh, spot that actually matters is getting the gold because you need to get gold in order to unlock some of the other features in the game. So regardless of the fact that you can play for fun and and win or place or show, so to speak, in horse racing terms. You really do need to win in order to unlock all of the different aspects of the game. So that's Grand Prix mode, single-player or two-player, so you can play with a friend if you have somebody local that you want to play with. There's also Match Racing, which is a two-player exclusive mode. This mode is really just a one-on-one race kind of experience. It's you and your friend or enemy, and you are racing around a track of your choosing. The goal is to beat the other opponent. Not a whole lot to say about that mode. That is just a very simple, straightforward mode if you really just want to have a one-on-one kind of experience. There's also a time trials mode, which is exclusive to single player. And this is where once you get through the racing, once you get through the Grand Prix, once you kind of get really familiar with the tracks, this is where I would anticipate a lot of people will spend a lot of time because all it is is picking a course and trying to get the best possible time on it. And you might say, well, that sounds, I don't know, kind of boring. You're not really competing against other people or other uh, other racers. But here is where it really comes into play in the Grand Prix mode. And we'll talk more about the specific aspects here. It is chaotic. There are a number of racers. You can bump into them. They can bump into you. They can knock you off the course. There are items flying all around. There are a lot of different elements that can happen that can make you not perform as well as you can that are entirely outside of your control. Time Trials gives you a effectively closed off environment for you to truly test your skills and to measure yourself simply against yourself. Now, it would have been great if there were things like the internet and online multiplayer back When Super Mario Kart were originally released because then you'd be able to compare lap times and overall times for different courses with a broader community very easily within the constructs of the game. Of course, that was not the case, but there are online communities even today where you can look at your time trials and you can compare your times against other expert players and try to kind of rank yourself amongst the broader community. So the time trials is actually the mode that most likely has the longest longevity at this point, simply because it is something that is truly and purely skill-based. You don't have all of the different chaotic and miscellaneous elements that could potentially affect your race results or affect your ability to complete a race. It is purely you against the course, and your skills will win the day. So that's the time trials mode. Uh, Once again, I think that is probably the mode that's going to get the most attention for people who are playing this game beyond its initial release, and certainly people that are playing the game today, I would imagine most of them are playing time trials versus just competing against the computer in Grand Prix, though that can be fun as well. And then the other mode that I want to talk about a little bit, because from my perspective, this is one of the most fun, fun modes in gaming ever, is the battle mode. This is a two-player mode. And the way this works is you and a buddy pick your character, and then you enter into specially designed courses specific to battle mode. You each have three, it's kind of like balloons, that float around you. And your goal is to deplete the other character's balloons and therefore win the match. And let me tell you about this one this is incredibly chaotic but insanely fun you ride around on these courses and it's it they're basically symmetrical kinds of courses where some of them are square and it's not like a racetrack so to speak but you navigate around these areas and you pick up various items from the question mark blocks that are on the ground and depending on what items you get you have to try to attack your opponent And some of the items like the red shells, they will seek out the opponent directly, but others you have to actually aim them. And when both players are trying to kind of drive away from each other or driving towards each other and almost like a chicken kind of uh, scenario, it is insanely fun. This was just one of those things where I played probably more battle mode in Super Mario Kart when I was younger than any other mode in the game. Today, for this podcast, I did not have the opportunity to play battle mode because I don't have a ready-made player two at the moment that I could uh, enjoy that with, but I did heavily enjoy that when I was young, and this is another one like Time Trials that I could see people just playing ad nauseum even today because it is just fun and it is something that really doesn't get old. So those are the overall modes that are in the game. There's also a lot of different aspects to the overall design of the game, and I think we should talk about each one in some degree of detail. So let's start by talking about the various racers included in the game, because this was really one of the aspects that drove a lot of the experience back when it was released. So you have eight different characters that you can choose from. You have Mario and Luigi, you have Toad and Koopa Troopa, Princess Peach and Yoshi, and Donkey Kong and Bowser. Each of those characters has a set of hidden attributes that govern how well they perform across various racing characteristics, like acceleration, handling, and top speed. As an example, Bowser and Donkey Kong might have the highest top speed, but they would also have the slowest acceleration. Toad and Koopa Troopa might have great handling, but they're otherwise slow racers and can be knocked around the course by heavier racing characters, and so on. So all of these characters have different attributes that govern how well they will perform in a race. And the game is designed in such a way that there are character pairs who share the same attributes, meaning not every single one of those eight individual characters are truly distinct. Mario and Luigi, as an example... They perform the same regardless of who you control. Their only difference, really, is the way they look, and in some cases, which items computer-controlled racers have access to. And we'll talk about items in a little bit. Now, each character can technically win any race, though there is a bit of a learning curve from my perspective associated with the slower-accelerating characters like Bowser and Donkey Kong. The reason being that if you bump into an obstacle or a wall, you lose all of your speed, which makes it difficult to get back in the race. Now, there are some ways you can kind of mitigate that, and more skilled players will be able to do various maneuvers that both avoid hitting obstacles and maintain a high speed, regardless of what's happening on the tracks, as well as there's actually a move where you can jump at the right time as you're about to impact an obstacle, and you don't actually lose speed. You just bump off or careen off in a different direction, which is, once again, a pretty advanced skill in the game. But... Somebody just starting out, just starting to play the game, is not necessarily going to have those skills. So that's why I say the learning curve is a little bit higher for those characters. You probably want to have a pretty strong sense of how the racing in the game works before you start tackling Bowser or Donkey Kong or any of those slower, accelerating kinds of characters. So those are the characters in the game. Let's now talk about power-ups, since they can have a huge impact on how each race plays out. And I want to talk about each one briefly. So you have a green shell. Green shell is pretty much a very standard kind of power-up. You can shoot the shell forward or you can drop it behind you. It basically shoots in a single direction. Whatever direction it is that you're aiming, it will move in that direction. There's no homing ability or anything like that. It just shoots. It can bounce off walls, and sometimes I know myself, I would shoot shoot it at somebody, I would miss, it would hit a wall and then bounce right back and hit me, which made me curse everything in the world. But it is still somewhat useful if you can get close enough to the racer in front of you to shoot the shell and actually have it hit them but it kind of has limited use beyond that other than driving or adding a little bit of additional chaos to each individual race. You also have a red shell. This is much more useful because the red shell is effectively a homing missile. It will attack whatever player is immediately in front of you in a race or in battle mode. It'll just go right after your opponent, which is kind of awesome. The red shell is incredibly useful. And it's one of those things where you can use it. If you're further back In the racing pack, but where I find the best use of the red shell is right as you're in second place as you're entering the final lap of a race. Because, and we'll talk about the rival system in the game in a few minutes, but what you want to try to do is mix up the computer controlled characters that are near the top of each of the races, because that makes it so that your points, hopefully, are going to be so much so that by the time you get to the fifth race, you basically can win by just placing fourth. You don't have to worry about winning that race. If you can do that, then you're kind of golden for that final race. So the red shell is incredibly useful. You also have a mushroom, which is effectively just a power boost. It's an accelerator boost. So a lot of times if you're on a straightaway and you know that there's a turn far enough ahead, you can use this. That really does give you a nice boost of speed. You do want to be careful using a mushroom around corners or certainly on tracks that don't have walls because you can potentially shoot yourself right off the side of the track. There's also banana peel, which, similar to the green shell, can be thrown either forwards or backwards. This, when you throw it or when you drop it, will remain on the track in a single position. So a racer has to literally race over the banana peel in order to be affected by it. There's also coins in the game. Now, coins are an interesting mechanic that were added into the game. You can get coins either by driving over them on the track, or you can have coins be an item that you get from one of the question mark squares that are on the track itself. And the way it works is the more coins you have, the higher your possible top speed is. And I believe the tops out at 10 coins. So beyond 10 coins, I don't believe it provides any sort of additional benefit, but it is definitely something where you would want to, if at all possible, maintain around 10 coins in your inventory at any point in time, because you can lose coins. If you fall off the side of a track or you need to be rescued You will have to give up a couple coins for the privilege of being rescued. You can also lose coins if enemies or enemy racers bump into you. And let me tell you, they will bump into you. So you do want to pay attention to your coins a bit. Not the most useful item in the game, but it is something where at least up to that 10 count where you get to what is effectively your max top speed, they do serve a purpose. Uh, There's also a feather in the game, and this allows you to do what is pretty much a super jump. This has limited use in most tracks, but there are some tracks, particularly in the Ghost House tracks, as well as the Bowser Castle tracks, where you can exploit a fairly good set of shortcuts if you have use of the feather. That's really the the main use that I found for them, is being able to take some shortcuts in those tracks, and some of them are pretty significant shortcuts. So you do want to keep an eye out for where you could potentially jump over gaps that would otherwise be unable to be traversed other than going around them. Jumping over them can sometimes give you a major leg up in the overall race. There's also star power in the game, which is just like star power from Super Mario games. You effectively become invincible. The driving mechanics also change when you have star power. You have much greater acceleration and much greater control of your cart when you get star power, which I will say is a little bit of a mixed bag as far as the benefit If you're racing on straightaways or pretty standard kinds of courses, it definitely helps. If you have a lot of turns, though, and curves in a particular track, you may actually be better off using power slides to go around there as opposed to star power, because I found that at least on a few tracks, when I would try to turn because I was expecting to do a power slide, I kind of overcompensated the turn and made me go into or made myself go into a wall, which actually ended up hurting my chances of winning versus winning. The one thing I will say that I love about star power is if you bang into another racer, it completely wipes them out and you get to continue on your merry way. And with the way some of these computer controlled players play, that is something that definitely made me happy. Beyond that, there is one other item available in the standard racing mode. And that is the lightning bolt, which is a literal game changer. You get the lightning bolt and you can make everybody else shrink Which reduces their speed and allows you to ride over them, which once again knocks them out of the race for a period of time. This is something where you could be in last place, you could get the lightning bolt, and you could literally propel yourself to first place if you race well enough. It is that overpowered, which is awesome. Now, the game itself has this at a relatively low probability of ever appearing and will only appear if you are in the back of the pack. I believe the only chance for a lightning bolt to appear is if you're in fifth place or below. So it's not like you'll be in first place, you get a lightning bolt, and you can completely decimate the competition. There are various, uh, I'll say, advantages given to the computer that prevent you from getting too far ahead of them, and that's one of them. But at the same time, the game does provide some... Opportunity for players to be able to get back in the race if they're not performing quite as well. And I do want to mention there is only one other item in the game. It is specific to two player battle mode, and that is the ghost. The ghost will turn you invisible and will steal whatever item your opponent has, which can be pretty darn fun if you get a good item from them and it makes you go invisible. So that is a little bit of a fun item to use that's not available in any mode other than the battle mode. Now, Even though those are the items in the game, the interesting thing is that computer-controlled racers don't necessarily use those items. Those items are pretty much only for the player. All of the computer-controlled characters have their own unique items in many cases, some of which act similarly to the standard items in the game, but there are others that are completely unique. And like we talked about, there are sort of uh, cart pairings or car pairings that we have for the different racers and attributes. There are also some pairings that happen with items here as well, not in all instances, but in some, some of the characters share certain items. So as an example, peach and toad, both have access to a mushroom. Now this is a poison mushroom, which means they can throw it out on the track. And if you land on it, it shrinks you down similar to the lightning bolt, albeit it doesn't spin you out like the lightning bolt does. So you, this will basically make you shrink and it makes keeping any sort of lead that you may have very, very difficult because you're moving slower and you can potentially be run over by other racers. Donkey Kong has access to a banana peel, which is the same exact banana peel that's in the game available to players, so really nothing to talk about there. Yoshi has access to an egg, which acts the same exact way as a banana peel. It is simply a reskinned banana peel, so nothing really to talk about there. Koopa Troopa has access to a green shell, which is the same exact green shell available to players, so nothing really to call attention to with that one. Mario and Luigi both have star power. That is the same star power that you will get or that a player can get by racing around the course. And Bowser has a unique item, which is a moving fireball, which basically he puts the fireball down on the track and it can move a little bit horizontally left and right. Now, that doesn't sound like it'd be that big of a deal. It sounds like they're using some unique items, but a lot of items that come directly from the normal item items that are in the game. The thing is, because computer-controlled characters are not actually picking these items up from the game world, they have, once again, some advantages over players. And one of the advantages is they have an unlimited supply of their special item. They can literally use them at will. The only time they cannot use them is if you're in the first lap of a race. At least that's what I noticed. I have not noticed a computer controlled character using their special item in the first lap of any race I've been on. Once you hit the second lap though, you better be ready. And at later difficulties, this becomes absolutely insane and we will talk about that in just a little bit. So, before we move into the more specific aspects of the game like graphics, sound, and narrative, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says because as you all know, I love taking a look at the back of the box. I love reading about how different companies marketed their products and how they really tried to sell those products to you as consumers, especially around this era of gaming, because it's not like we had YouTube to look up gameplay videos. It's not like we necessarily had a ton of magazines that went into in-depth reviews to try to sell the items, although they did exist. But a lot of times, if we were in a video or computer game store, the decision as far as how or why to buy something or if we would buy something was driven almost entirely by how the box looked. Did the box look cool? Did the back of the box tell us a good story? If so, we're probably going to pick up the game. So, for Super Mario Kart, the back of the box says, Ladies and gentlemen, start your engines. The Super Mario Go Kart Park is open for fun. Master the unique driving styles of Mario, Luigi, and the princess. Drag with Donkey Kong Jr. Crash with the King of the Koopas. Lock fenders with Yoshi. You can race head-to-head with a friend or against the computer in great split-screen mode 7 graphics. Do you have what it takes to win the gold cup in the challenging star circuit? It's as much fun to drive as it is to win. Feel like a bit less speed and a lot more strategy? Take a crack at the battle mode. In four different maze-like courses, you'll use Koopa shells, banana peels, superstars, and other wacky weapons to burst your opponent's target balloons and triumph. And then a couple of bullets. Two games in one, Mario Grand Prix and battle mode. Eight familiar characters, 20 different tracks, three different skill levels, and battery-backed memory saves your best times. So that is what the back of the box says, and I've got to say that would have sold me. There are also some images of the game Which, if I were looking at this back when it was released, I would have thought, holy cow, those are the graphics on a Super Nintendo. Sign me up. So, we're now going to start talking about the more specific aspects of the game. We're going to start with graphics. For a 16-bit Super Nintendo title, this looks really, really good. Even today, I think the Mode 7 graphics really made the game feel advanced. While playing the game, you would never really think... Oh, this is just a cool two-dimensional graphics trick. It looked like what you would expect a racing game to look like, and it worked. Colors were all vibrant, animations were smooth, and there was no slowdown at all, or at least nothing that was worth remembering. Pretty much everything looked good. I will say that the rearview mirror has a much lower level of graphical fidelity than the rest of the game, which I can completely forgive given even that was a fairly advanced design and implementation for the time in which the game is created. Otherwise, though, the game looks really good. But I should note that even though the Mode 7 graphics and the title look great, they don't totally hold up under scrutiny if you take a more critical view of the title. Meaning, if you go out looking for issues, you can certainly find them. But if you're simply playing the game, I doubt anyone would come away thinking it looked anything other than a solid 16-bit title. Moving on to the sound and music, I want to preface this by saying, I believe Soryo Oka had a pretty steep challenge when composing the music. How do you take traditional, very well-known Mario themes composed by Koji Kondo and make your own equally great-sounding music in a completely different genre than what had come before? The answer to that question, we now know, is to hire Soryooka, Oka, who absolutely knocked the music out of the park. I love this soundtrack. Every musical piece feels perfect, and if I didn't know better, I would have simply assumed Kondo composed all these tracks. Nothing felt out of place at all. Every single song felt like it belonged in the Mario universe and stood alone as quality compositions in their own right. My personal favorite is the theme that plays when racing on beach tracks, which I think is a perfect combination of laid-back, tropical cool with just a hint of speed. It is simply perfect. Sound effects are similarly well-designed and really capture the feel of being in Mario's world, albeit on go-kart tracks as opposed to traipsing about the Mushroom Kingdom. Not a single complaint about the sound effects or music. They enhance the enjoyment of the game, and I love everything about them. Moving on to the narrative and story, there really isn't any story here, and I don't believe there's any true explanation given as to why all of these various characters have gotten together to race go-karts against each other. That being said, it doesn't really matter. This is a racing game. We don't need an epic story here. And honestly, a story in the game probably would have felt a little weird. So no story to speak of, but also no complaint about that fact. Moving on to the playbuilding controls, there's a lot to talk about related to the overall playability and the controls of the game, because even though the game appears simple at first glance, there is a surprising amount of depth here. You have your typical controls for steering your vehicle around the various tracks, using the D-pad for steering, the B-button for acceleration, and the Y-button for your brakes. The A-button allows you to use items that you can pick up, and the left and right shoulder buttons are used to make your cart jump. Steering, acceleration, and braking work pretty much the way you would expect. There is a way to time your acceleration at the start of the race to receive a boost, which I thought was nice, though if you mess up the timing by pressing the accelerator too soon, your wheels will spin out, which is not so nice. For the most part though, regardless of how the race starts, you can recover. The real nuance and strategy of the game, however, comes with how you use your jumps while racing. By default, If you jump as you're going around a turn while keeping your accelerator down, you'll enter into a slide that will attempt to maintain speed while cornering around the turn. This however oftentimes results in you skidding off the track entirely unless you ease up on the accelerator. If you hold your jump button however, you can go into what feels like a more controlled slide and if you steer just right, or more accurately counter steer, you can emerge from a slide right where you want to be on the track and without any loss of speed. This skill set, the whole power slide counter-steer thing, is absolutely unessential for the normal difficulties, meaning the 50cc and 100cc speeds. But if you master them early, that makes you a much more proficient racer and simplifies your ability to beat your opponents. That skill set, though, becomes almost required at the 150cc speed, which is unlocked after you beat the special cup in 100cc mode. If you want to beat the ludicrous difficulty of the upper tier mode, you need to get really good at power sliding, Otherwise, I honestly don't know how you would win. Actually, you know what? This might be a good time to talk about difficulty in the game, since it does affect the overall playability of the title. So difficulty in Mario Kart, and we talked about this a little bit, is a sign based on the speed of your kart. 50cc is the easiest and is a nice introduction to the game. There are three cups available in that mode, and the special cup, which is kind of the hardest collection of tracks, isn't able to be unlocked here. In 100cc mode, you get a nice step up in challenge, but it is still doable with a bit of practice. That mode has the same three cups as the 50cc mode, with the addition of a special cup that, if you finish with a gold medal, will unlock 150cc mode. And 150cc mode is absolutely brutal, and will make you want to throw your controller for hours on end until you eventually get proficient enough to simply compete with the computer. Note, I said compete rather than beat, because there is absolutely no guarantee you will win the gold here despite how well you race. For those of you who love every single aspect of the game, I want to warn you, this next section might feel a little rough, but please bear with me. There are some things we need to discuss about why I believe this game, at the highest difficulty settings in particular, is designed to be a somewhat unfair experience, at least in the single player Grand Prix mode. So first, let's talk about a core design mechanic of the game. Carts can and will bump into each other. Taken by itself, that's not a big deal, and it can sometimes be fun to bounce back and forth when you're all grouped up. In the later difficulties, however, and in particular, on the ghost track in the special cup of 150cc mode, the computer will actively try to ram you off the track if you even attempt to enter their driving line. And heaven forbid if you fall off the track because you get placed back on the track right on the racing line and right near the edge of the track, which means if Bowser ends up racing behind you, he might just knock you off the track again, right after you got placed back on the track. It can be comical, but it can also be incredibly frustrating. Second, let's talk about each computer-controlled racer's use of weapons. It is just brutal they constantly use their special weapons and they have impeccable aim. I want to talk to you about one example of this and one that literally made me shake my head and laugh a little bit before I started to cry. I was racing on the ghost track of the special cup in 150 CC mode. And I was playing as toad, which meant that peach was going to be my rival because there are rivals effectively in this game. So I was racing on that track. And as I'm racing around the track, Peach is constantly throwing her poison mushroom at me, which if I get hit by it would shrink me down and make it much more difficult to maintain my position. I had managed to avoid the mushroom for three or four of the laps. I was doing pretty well. And there was one point in the race where I decided I got the mushroom, the special power mushroom that gives you extra acceleration. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to use this. I'm going to get even further ahead and I am just going to leave the rest of the competition in my dust. So I hit the accelerator on the power mushroom. And wouldn't you know it, Peach timed and aimed her throw perfectly so that it would hit me right as I moved out of my acceleration, meaning she anticipated my accelerator move. She threw the mushroom and landed it smack dab in the middle of where I was aiming. It was absolutely one of those experiences that just made me want to punch a wall it was so irritating because i'm winning i'm winning this race and it is very difficult 150 cc mode is very difficult i was winning and then i got hit with this mushroom and then of course what ends up happening is either peach or donkey kong rode over me and knocked me out of the race and then everybody else came up and then i got placed back on the race and got knocked off the side and basically what was a first place race turned into a last place race and i got really really irritated at the computer very irritated the other thing with that is that the computer controlled players never attack each other they only attack you so if you see an item on the track it's not because they're trying to go after each other those were items that they had left there because they were trying to decimate you the other thing is they can jump over obstacles and weapons that you fire at them with an insane degree of skill they basically have constant access to use the leaf you can't jump over any items but they can jump over items whenever they want. And there have been times where I was literally right behind an enemy or a racer and I fired a shell and literally split second accuracy, split second timing, they hit their jump and the shell just races right past them and they just continue. They don't lose any speed. They just continue racing around the course like nothing even happened. And I'm like, no, I fired the shell. I should have, you should have. Eh, well, in any event, it can be a little bit frustrating. So let's talk about the rival system, too, because I've referenced it a couple times so far, and this also plays into the concept of what a lot of people have termed the rubber band style of racing gameplay. Now, I want to preface this by saying, from what I understand, the original Super Mario Kart does not, in fact, have the same kind of rubber band gameplay systems in place that future iterations of the title have. But I want to use that analogy for the point of this discussion. Rubber band gameplay refers to a mechanic where no matter how far ahead in a race someone may be, the game will take various actions to make the race actually be a closer finish. That could be giving better items to individuals who may be falling behind, or in the case of computer controlled characters, giving them superhuman speed and abilities to catch up to the pack. The Super Nintendo version of Super Mario Kart has some aspects of this, like the fact that the worse you're doing, the better the chance that you'll receive a good item from the question mark blocks that are littered around the track. Another way the game uses a rubber band like Mechanic is with its rival system. Note that I don't know if this is an official name for the system or not, but the rival system that I'm talking about refers to the fact that for each character, there is a predefined rival who will always hang with you in a race. As an example, Toad's rival is Peach, which means that by default, a race outcome will either always have Peach win over other computer controlled characters, or if you win, Peach will come in second, no matter what. Unless, of course, you manipulate the outcome of that event, say by firing a red shell at Peach to make her drop down in the rankings, which you might think, awesome, there's no way Peach catches up now. Except you would be wrong, since because Peach is your rival, as long as there's at least a lap left in the race, she will catch up, almost guaranteed. Legitimately, the computer cheats to make this happen. There is no way, under normal circumstances, anyone could catch up with the speed that these computer characters do. The one caveat here is that if you are on the last lap of a race, you could actually knock Peach out close enough to the finish that she doesn't finish the race in second or first. If that happens, the racer who comes in second, or first if you end up not winning the race, will become your new rival and will have the same supernatural abilities that Peach once had. On 150cc difficulty, this means that every single race is a race for your life it is constant tension and constantly needs you to watch for the cheating computer. It feels like no matter what you do, you are never truly solely in control of your own destiny. I know that was part of what the team was going for with how they designed the items into the game, but the computer on the hardest difficulty goes well beyond what this core mechanic should enable. Now, I do recognize that computer artificial intelligence at this point wasn't terribly advanced. So I'm assuming the reason the computer is given such advantages is because there wasn't a way to program the computer to actually be smart and act more like a human player to create true difficulty. So instead, artificial difficulty was inserted. I get it, but it doesn't mean I have to like it. And when you combine all of those as well as some really tricky and narrow track designs with a ton of obstacles, like, say, the first track in the special cup of the 150cc mode, Donut Planes 3, you have a recipe for a situation where the ante to even stand a chance at winning is incredibly high and partially driven by luck. That all said, you can develop your skills high enough to offset those challenges, and I did in fact beat the 150cc mode fair and square after hours upon hours of practice. Even now, around a week after I beat the game, my left thumb is actually still numb from using the control pad and racing the title. I may have actually injured myself, but I did do it after many hours of practice, although I would be lying if I said it wasn't a frustrating, hair-pulling experience. Now, regardless of all of that and all of those critiques, the game still plays really well. It's just that there are some aspects of the experience that are designed in a more frustrating rather than fun way. So, how did it feel overall to play the game? Even after all of that negativity, and you might think that if I'm being this negative about certain aspects of the game, that it wouldn't feel all that great to play. But the reality is, the game is an absolute joy to experience. The best way to explain it is that the game is simply fun. It doesn't matter what mode you're playing. It's just fun, and it looks, sounds, and controls great, even today. In fact, I would go so far as saying every single mode, with the exception of the 150cc difficulty, provide some of the most fun possible in a single gaming experience. But I have to say that the 150cc difficulty, and specifically the special cup of that mode, present such an insane difficulty, some of which is purely artificial, that I can't in good conscience recommend everyone to attempt that particular challenge. As a purely optional challenge mode, it doesn't really take away from the core experience of playing the game, but it is an aspect of the game that shines less brightly than everything else in the title. So, overall, what is our verdict on Super Mario Kart? Regardless of any complaints I've mentioned, which once again were mostly focused on an entirely optional challenge difficulty level, Super Mario Kart is absolutely an entry into our pantheon of classic gaming. It distills the racing experience into a fun, chaotic affair that brought a smile to my face almost from beginning to end, and its influence on future games is undeniable. Super Mario Kart is one of those classic games that must be experienced, and for that reason, it belongs in our pantheon of classic gaming. That was our episode on Super Mario Kart. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide comments, feedback, suggestions for future episodes, or just talk about classic games and technology in general, I would love to hear from you, and there are a couple of ways you can reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com, and I also have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt. so feel free to drop me a line if you feel so inclined. I am definitely interested in hearing what you all think. Before we sign off the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on Secret of Evermore, so if anybody has any particularly fond or not so fond memories of that experience, please let me know. At the same time, I recognize you're likely listening to this podcast on any number of podcast aggregation engines, and if you feel so inclined, it would be great if you could leave me a review. This is not about bolstering star counts. It is not about trying to harvest a bunch of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome, that means we're doing something right. No, this is really all about gathering the feedback necessary to make this the best possible podcast it can be. The only way to do that is to gather feedback and make sure that any gaps are addressed and we are hitting the mark with what everybody wants to listen to. We gain new listeners every single day. This has been an awesome experience. I have loved having this podcast and communicating with all of you. And if you would feel so inclined to let me know, make sure that we're doing the best possible thing we can do, it would be greatly appreciated. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Secret of Evermore. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone.